This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more. This is Greg Bartalis for Barron's The Way Forward. Now, in planning for today's podcast, which is being recorded on May 26th, I wanted to discuss what's top of mind for most investors and... Not surprisingly, that's the stock market. And I also wanted to interview someone who has a long track record of success and who intimately understands value stocks, given that after a decade of underperformance, they've finally woken up. Well, all roads led to Chris Davis, chairman and portfolio manager of Davis Advisors. And today, Chris will discuss where he sees opportunity in a market, value versus growth, the Fed, inflation, and interest rates, and he'll also describe what it's like working alongside Warren Buffett and explain what prompted his firm to launch active ETFs. Chris, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Greg. It's great to be here. Well, look, we have a lot to tackle today. We're going to try to get it in um, not too long time, but um, first, for listeners who don't know who you are, tell us a tiny bit about yourself, and then let's try to unpack what's going on in the markets today. Well, I been uh, managing money on behalf of clients for about 30 years. We were old-fashioned, research-driven, long-term equity specialists. And I think one of the things that separates us is just a profound alignment of interests. We are the largest investor in the funds that we uh, we manage for clients. And so, we make a lot more money from better results than more assets under management. And so, we try to look beyond predicting stock performance and focus on owning businesses for the long term so that our returns can be driven by the returns of the underlying business as if we owned the entire thing rather than as if we're trying to predict uh, a future PE strategy or a change in psychology to generate our return. And there's, again, a lot to unpack with the markets. I mean, the, the markets, you know, risk on, risk off. It's it's all over the place. And w- w- what's your take on where we are today? And and just starting with a little context, you know, the NASDAQ's down, I think, 25 plus, 25% plus year to date. S&P was down 17, 18, 19%, uh, large cap value about 5%. Um, so definitely there's been a repricing of risk. But um, what again, what's your take on, on things now? Well, if I think of our overarching goal is to build generational wealth. And so we really trace our roots back to my grandfather who started investing in the late 1940s. And you think about that and that meant really he had come through the crash and the depression in World War II uh, and then right into the the Cold War, the, the Berlin Wall, uh, the, the Cold War, Korea, uh, Vietnam presidential assassinations, the creation of OPEC, uh, uh, the the uh, crash of the early 70s and stagflation, uh, right through to Watergate and political scandals. And, uh, you know, the Soviet Union invaded uh, uh, in that time, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and uh, Afghanistan twice. So, when you have that mindset, of thinking about investing not over a five-year, three-year, 10-year stretch, but sort of generational wealth building, Mm -hmm. what you realize is that the game of trying to make predictions is a fool's errand. I mean, what people want to know today, Greg, is they want to know, you know, it's all macroeconomic, right? They want macroeconomic forecasts. That's the big focus of today. 
uh, they want to know, uh, is, are we in a really, uh, a real bear market? Uh, how is it going to play out? What about the, the prospects of stagflation or recession? Of course, there's interest in geopolitics. Now, the same people that will line up to give predictions uh, about those topics are the same people, Greg, that failed to predict the Russian invasion of uh, uh, mm -hmm. Ukraine. They failed to predict COVID. They failed to predict the sharpest market decline in history and the biggest rebound in market history. Mm -hmm. So you have people that failed to predict what's already happened, and yet uh, we rely on them to give predictions about what's going to happen next. So when we think about investing through the cycle, what we know is when we make an investment in a company, we believe, we model that we will own that company in a recession because there is going to be a recession. We just don't know when. There is going to be a period of rising rates, falling rates, inflation, strengthening dollar, weakening dollar. So I will give you my opinion on those subjects to the extent that you want them. I just want to make clear that we invest when we build our return models for each business that we uh, uh, own. We do it with the expectation that we will own that business through periods of weakness and periods of strength. And that's sort of that generational investing wealth building mindset. Your words ring true, and and they're also quite reassuring and hard to dispute. It's it's interesting because so many pe people, the media, etc., they very much don't play into that because it's reassuring and probably hard to commercialize that message too. <laughs> quite frankly, <laughs> well, well, uh, you're you widening the lens very much, and it's kind of like what Buffett said, right? Don't bet against the U.S. economy. Oh, you, you're going to have GDP should grow as long as you know, absent some global calamity on a seismic scale, um, you can infer that there will be growth and ergo profits, and you'll you'll probably do fine as long as you have a discipline and and don't you know, dart in and out of the market. Well, and like my, my wife used to say, you know, the, the, the secret to a happy marriage is low expectations. And I think one <laughs> of the issues is that when people invest, I think one of the most valuable things advisors can do is recognize that setting expectations matters for a healthy relationship. It mm -hmm. does not make it easier to get the client up front but it doesn't matter because it makes it easier to keep the client. It makes for a happy relationship. So if you were to set expectations when you get a client, what you'd say is, hey, there's a 10% correction on average every year. There's a 20% bear market on average every three years. You know, the average drawdown from high to low in any single year is 14%. You know, 54% of years have double-digit drawdowns, right? In other words, there's nothing unusual about the market being down 20%. It is a unpleasant but regular feature of the investment landscape. And by setting those expectations, you, in a sense, mentally help the client be prepared. Now, when instead the client turns on the news and sees, oh my God, the market's down 10%, it's down 15, it's down 20. Well, everybody is screaming that this is Armageddon, not that, well, this just happens every three years. And Greg, you got the reason why. It's because, you know, I'm going to pick on the financial media, uh, but the financial media, let's use the weather channel as an analogy. The weather channel is not in the business of predicting the weather. Right? They're in the mm -hmm. business of selling ads. Now, to sell ads, 
they need excitement. They need viewers. They need engagement, to use a word du jour. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. to get that, you can't say, well, on average, the weather is pretty normal. You have to say we're in a heat dome or snowpocalypse or, you know, the pollen count is, you know, at radioactive levels. You need to create a storm of the century, you know, a couple of times a year. And so you need to generate excitement yeah. and you need to do that in order to sell ads. So the weather channel, of course, sensationalizes the weather rather than predicts the weather. And the financial press is, is prone to the same thing because they're not in the business of predicting markets. They're not in the business of managing investor behavior. They're in the business of creating engaged, excited viewers and a lot of drama. So that's right. And that's, and, and I love the weather example because the, the, I, I, so I'm going to argue that that's true for all media. Um, but weather, you would not even think of that. Most people see it as relatively, you know, saccharine low as to weather. It's windy, a little sunny, but you're right. They need conflict. They need tension that drives engagement, which drives ratings, which drives revenue and profit. So it Do all you comes want a together. Wonderful story on that, Greg, from, uh, you know, my hero and mentor in life is Charlie Munger. And, and I was asking him about this because as a capitalist, I, I fundamentally believe that we have a system that's pretty good at uh, uh, at weeding out things that don't work. So the fact that, you know, to quote Galbraith, who said, you know, the fortune of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. Uh, you know, I find it interesting that there, there so many people make a living giving forecasts that have no predictive value about where the market will be a year from now or interest rates and so on. And the data, you can quantify that there is no predictive value in these forecasts. And yet everybody makes a living. So I was asking Charlie about it and Charlie said, well, let me tell you a story in my town and uh, where he has a, a lake house in Minnesota. And he said, you know, there's a tackle shop. And uh, I was looking at a new lure there that was pink and green. And I said, my God, this is the weirdest looking thing. Do fish take this lure? And the old timer behind the desk said, mister, I don't sell to fish. <laughs> so I, I hope that fish take it, but I, I stock that lure because people take it. That's the business I'm in. I'm not in the fish catching business. I'm in the tackle selling business. They may be vaguely related and correlated, but they are not the same thing. So I think you're exactly right about, uh, and you're right to extrapolate it to general media from well, just you know, financial and, and to media. your what's interesting, I mean, about political news, for example, is people will watch pundits. It, it really comes down to supply and demand. There's heavy demand for the pundits to write to predict, and there's ample supply. But even when people watch and listen, they intellectually know that there's a good chance they'll be wrong, and yet they still are incredibly interested, perhaps to just get a morsel of wisdom. I don't know. Well, Greg, I'm going to say something really even worse than that, because you know, to to generate sensationalism about the weather, so a few more raincoats or umbrellas are sold, or sensationalism about the market, so that there's a little more volatility in transaction volume. I mean, that that that, that there's you don't have to be in the innermost circle of hell. Uh, for engaging in that. Whereas when you think about what's happened in our political discourse, you really need to be in the inner circle of hell. It is mm -hmm. because what's happened is by recognizing that negative advertising creates engagement, mm -hmm. people respond in anger more strongly, in disgust, 
in fear more strongly. Well, I don't know if you remember back, you know, in the 1970s, if you looked at consumer products uh, commercials on TV, there was lots of negative ads. Oh, you know, their burger is fried. Oh, theirs is frozen. Oh, their, uh, you know, theirs has artificial ingredients. Ours, uh, and you notice you see very few ads today for commercial pro consumer products that have uh, that are negative in the same way. And you know the reason? Hmm. The reason was what they realized is although negative advertising is really good for shifting market share, it shrinks the category over time. Hmm. So what happened was in the consumer products arena People started wising up and saying, well, there was a national governor because we could gain five points of market share by saying their product has artificial ingredients. And then they would take back four points of market share by saying ours was frozen. Uh, and then they would take that back by saying ours was fried. But in the meantime, the category started shrinking. People saw too many negative images of burgers and they decided they didn't like burgers quite as much. And in politics, there's no governor to that. So what we are doing by this continual barrage of negative advertising, they have decided to prioritize market share, in other words, getting elected mm -hmm. over the disgust with the entire system that all of that negative advertising is generating. And that is a insidious, treacherous, traitorous form of behavior for our public servants to be engaged with. So I, I, I would say, and that, that is the one area where I think the, the destruction to our, our civil society that comes from having a system where it's okay for a politician to degrade the entire system provided they get reelected uh, is a terrible and discouraging outcome. I totally agree. And it's definitely cynical. And sadly, in the short term, a lot of the if you think of the ecosystem that benefits from that, they're incentivized structurally to 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 further that. I mean, for the person to come out and say, hey, stop, don't do that. The risk reward is probably not going to be very good. So they just kind of go with the flow and it kind of helps all the people, I suppose, involved in that. But I it is de true. definitely discouraging. Yeah. And highly unfortunate. Well, we've solved a lot of the big problems in the world. <laughs> we've, we've at least described the big problems. I would say yeah. we haven't done any, we have had no solutions thus far. No, none whatsoever. Okay. So with the market, I understand how you're framing it. So let's talk less about things like bull market, bear market timing, because I, I understand your point about, about a longer uh, flow of time. Um, I'd rather, let, I want to talk about two of your active ETFs and, and what I found quite interesting about them. So there's the Davis Select equity ETF, DUSA. Um, it's large caps. Um, it has 50, 55% financials, and then it has a healthy amount of uh, tech and communication. Uh, and then also Davis Select Financial ETF, DFNL. Um, and per the name, uh, best of breed or well, larger you know, financial firms. Um, tell me a little about why you guys um, launched these, what the thinking is, and then I want to have a conversation about some of the underlying holdings because the composition is particularly interesting on the uh, DUSA. Well, it's a, it's a great question, right? You know, I, 
we have a, an investment discipline that has been, in our view, proven over 50 years. And uh, it has characteristics of low turnover, low expenses. Uh, 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 we have a culture of transparency uh, and we tend to work and have built our firm in relationship with financial advisors. And the reason is we think managing a portfolio is different than managing a client and managing behavior is different than uh, than doing financial analysis on businesses. So we've had that mindset for 50 years or more. And we had some advisors come to us a few years ago, five, six years ago, and say, you know, given that you guys have low turnover and low expenses and a culture of transparency, could you offer your services in the form of an ETF? And at first, uh, like many people, I thought, oh, but aren't ETFs passive? And of course, what you realize is, well, passive is a strange word. There are lots of, quote, passive ETFs that have very high turnover because the constituents of an underlying index are changing so much, you know, mm -hmm. growth value and so on. Um, and of course, we realized for many advisors, an ETF structure was really helpful to their practice to serve their end client. There were, you know, tax concerns or ease of transactions and, you know, the way the systems that they were involved in in their firms where they happened to be. And so all of a sudden, a light bulb went on and we thought it is amazing to me that there aren't more actively managed ETFs. And so we launched uh, uh, our ETFs of our uh, uh, the strategies in which we saw the most promise in the current environment. So they weren't necessarily the most popular strategies in the current environment, mm -hmm. but the ones where we saw the greatest investment potential. Because of course we're going to put our own money into them. That's part of our promise to clients. And so you you picked on two that are very close to my heart. Uh, one is very contrarian because it is uh, we're launching at a period when active management is out of favor in general and value is particularly out of favor, we launched DUSA, which is a concentrated, uh, focused, uh, uh, stock by stock, sort of proven value discipline, uh, 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 actively managed US fund. And so, you know, it was something that uh, it was not necessarily in the spotlight and in favor, but where we see enormous opportunity. And it's, it's you know, based on our long-term same investment discipline run by the same portfolio managers, looking for the greatest opportunity to buy, find durable growing businesses at value prices in the U.S. and own them for the long term. So that is DUSA. And, and uh, as I say, that sort of approach has been out of favor for a long time, but we think it's worked over decades and so we love offering that as a true ETF, not one of these hybrid models, but fully transparent. Fully, mm -hmm. And we've been running that for some years. And then you're absolutely right, DFNL. And this one is close to my heart because, believe it or not, more than 30 years ago, I launched a, a financial mutual fund, a, a open-ended mutual fund that specialized in uh, financial stocks called the Davis Financial Fund. And I've run that for 32 years. And over that time, that fund has beat the S&P 500 uh, and really beat the financial index. Uh, and so when we looked in the ETF space, we were struck that the biggest uh, ETFs that specialized in the financial sector 
we're very concentrated in just a handful of mega cap banks. And mm -hmm. I happen to like those banks, but I, I mean, I'm doing this from memory, but I want to say they had, you know, about 40% of the fund invested in about five stocks. Mm -hmm. And our view is when people think they're buying an index, they aren't necessarily thinking about that degree of concentration. And so we've beaten the financial indexes handily over a long period of time in our uh, open-ended mutual funds. So our view was we had a discipline, we had credibility to bring that into the ETF space as a uh, actively managed financial sector fund. And that is, we're more diversified than the index. Uh, I think we have a little bit, we're a little safer as a result because we have a little more representation of some of the different subsectors, property, casualty, insurance, and uh, uh, investment banking, commercial banking, regional banking, and so on. But I will say, Greg, that you know, financial stocks in general and bank stocks in particular remain one of the great opportunities in today's market. So, uh, if we love our diversified, uh, general, actively managed uh, equity approach, but if uh, we take to heart Mae West's advice that too much of a good thing is wonderful, <laughs> then uh, certainly the financial sector is where we see terrific opportunity in these markets. And that, that was why we launched DFNL. Well, excellent. I mean, in terms of the other fund, DUSA, you have you have financials. It, it looks like your top holding is Berkshire Hathaway, Capital One. Uh, you have Wells Fargo, U.S. Bancorp, et cetera. But what's really interesting is you have a number of uh, mega cap tech names as well. Uh, uh, Alphabet, the uh, parent of Google, Amazon, Meta Platforms, uh, parent to Facebook. That's really interesting because quite often you wouldn't see those holdings, right, in the top 10. But what's intriguing, interesting is it speaks to a um, to independent thinking. I mean, it's not the usual suspect. So um, you also have relatively high conviction bets there. So tell me about how you're in being independent by going in different directions, but thematically limiting it too and not spreading yourself too thin either. Well, absolutely. I'll make two uh, observations uh, that will sound a little contradictory, but you'll actually see how they come together. And the, the first is that we have been in a period of time where if you simply divided the market into growth and value, uh, an enormous dispersion was created there over the last decade. Uh, and it really blew out in the last year. So we think that that gulf, which reminded us a lot of what we saw in the late 90s, was just way too wide. So there was a great opportunity in the late 90s to begin to build up the value side of your portfolio. And of course, what had happened uh, was that even though growth had so dramatically outperformed for, I want to say, a decade, uh, when you went through the next five years uh, into 2000, 2005, what happened was, you know, value did okay. Nothing to write home about. You know, it was call it roughly flattish up to three, four percent, but growth was down 30 percent. And I think that's one of the things we we're highlighting over the last few years is that people think about value lagging growth, but when value lags growth, you still are making money. And But what happens when the cycle reverses, if you end up with growth so dramatically overvalued, it's not that you underperform on a relative basis. You do, but that's bad enough. But what really uh, destroys returns and destroys clients over time is you end up with the idea of having negative, substantial negative returns uh, for, you know, four, five, six, seven years. And that's what happened between 2000 and 2005. So the first part of my answer is, 
of course, this growth got so far ahead of itself in aggregate. And so that moves us over to the value side. But then what you said in your question that's so astute is we would say the real opportunity is to look beyond those labels. Because mm -hmm. even if you think about that 2000 to 2005 period, you know, that it was out of those ashes, Google came, right? Amazon mm -hmm. erupted out of those. So you, if you said, well, all I'm going to do is avoid the growth correction and I'm going to dive into deep value, you missed what could build wealth over the next decade. So what we say is look beyond the labels, look for undervalued growth, right? So mm -hmm. not the growth pretenders, not the speculative, not the Spotify, Shopify, Square, Zoom, Tesla, NVIDIA. I mean, the stuff that we're like the absolute darlings at 20 times sales, for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. uh, so avoid what we would call speculative growth, focus on undervalued durable growth. What do we mean? Well, we mean, you know, Intel, Google, Applied Materials, Texas Instruments, JD.com, even Amazon at today's prices. Mm -hmm. So durable – then on the value side, if you're interested in value, be very careful to avoid cyclical deep value. And the reason is you may get it right. And if you do, you're going to do great. But boy, you get a recession and you're in a bunch of fragile levered companies that face disruption uh, and disintermediation. Uh, think of the sort of cigar butt cyclicals, mm. uh, high fixed costs. Uh, those businesses, if you get them wrong, you're going to be wiped out. So what we say is within the value sector, focus uh, on durable growing value. So undervalued growth, growing value. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean not the value traps, not that deep cyclical value, mm -hmm. but select financials, select healthcare, select industrials. So, you know, some of the financials you mentioned, we think of them as durable growing value. They've shown their resilience. My God, they went through the financial crisis. They went through COVID. Uh, they went through tech telecom. I mean, a lot of the financials today are safer than they've ever been and cheaper than they've ever been. So select financial, select healthcare. Uh, uh, you know, within the healthcare space, there are hot biotech darlings and there are just durable companies at reasonable valuations with long-term growth. Think of Quest, Viatris, things like that. Okay. Uh, so some insurance, some global companies and some industrial companies like Darling, Berkshire, you mentioned, uh, we think of those as high quality industrials. Okay. And getting now more into the macro, I, given what's going on now at the market, obviously no one knows where the bottom is, et cetera. And it's not per se important that we'd nail it, but what would capitulation look like? And, and I mean, to the extent you could describe what we might see, because to the extent it matters. The VIX, I think, is under 30. There's obviously a lot of fear, but I don't know. Just tell me what's your take on all that. Well, the only people that buy at bottoms are liars. Uh, <laughs> you know, it is, uh, you know, capitulation will look like panic. Um, do I think we're in an environment of panic now? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, you've gotten a bubble being burst. Um, and uh, uh, are we in panic? I don't know. What I do know is that the businesses that make up our portfolio are currently generating on average about a 7 or 8% earnings yield, right? So that is a hell of a decent place to start. 
They're resilient, durable companies with long-term records of growth, and yet they're on average trading at 12, 13 times earnings. I think that's sort of the, roughly the aggregate for our portfolios. Mm-hmm. Um, so our view is, you know, my grandfather, when I used to say, when's the best time to invest, you know, asking him about timing, he would say, when you have the money, uh, you know, more – uh, trying to predict the bottom is hard. But what we know is we're not buying businesses at the top, mm-hmm. right? We're buying businesses that are at good relative valuations. They're at good absolute valuations. They have proven records of durability. So it doesn't seem to me like a bad time to get started. It doesn't feel like a panic. COVID felt like a panic. Of course, the financial crisis was a panic. Um, you know, 99 and 2000, was a reorientation of the market, right? The market was down 9%, but I, I want to say in that year, we were up 9% or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of value investors were. So I do think we could have an environment where the market could continue to correct, but you could get enormous differentiation. That has not happened yet, Greg. I think partly it's because there's still so much money sloshing around with index and algorithm uh, that this thing could go on longer than we think. But we we think the starting point today is not bad. And just having the discipline to move rationally, not try to wait for the bottom, uh, uh, but try to be sort of disciplined about averaging in. Uh, uh, it, this doesn't seem to be a bad place to start. And I would say not only in some of the companies that I mentioned, value strategies, but with a focus on durability, it's certainly, I don't think, too early to be running a Geiger counter over some of the collapsed hot darlings and looking for, you know, when uh, Amazon got thrown out with the the bathwater of the internet uh, debacle of, of uh, 2000, 2001, 2002. So we think you want to be looking there. And if I was to add one more idea for you, Greg, about what what looks lousy in the world, uh, where people have not wanted to invest, I would continue to say people should be looking globally. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, The U.S. has so dramatically outperformed the rest of the world in terms of stock prices, but not always by businesses. There are some absolute stunningly good businesses uh, in Europe, in Asia, in China, uh, in Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, and we think that investors uh, should be open-minded to looking when they can buy a business of comparable quality at half the valuation. Uh, don't be afraid to look overseas. Can you be more specific, any uh, sectors or countries just to be a little more granular? To well, Greg, you know, not to be a broken record. Of course, I love durable financials around the world. So think of the Development Bank of Singapore, DBS. Uh, think of Danske Bank or Bank Julius Baer in Europe. You know, these are, uh, you know, Julius Baer is a private bank and a wealth manager. You know, I think it's got a 5% dividend. Uh, trading at a, you know eight or nine times earnings with high capital ratios and you know 100 years of operating history uh, Danske Bank in Denmark or DNB the largest bank in Norway so financials is one and then I would say I am a I, I believe that there is so much fear and panic priced into the best Chinese companies mm-hmm. that I think it's worth putting a marker on the table I wouldn't want to bet the ranch. There is political risk. There's uncertainty. But China has outgrown the U.S. for more than 40 years. They've been rational, pro-business, and long-term. People are afraid. And as I say, I think it's good to be thoughtful about it, not religious uh, about it. But companies like Tencent 
Alibaba, JD. Those are some of the best companies we know anywhere in the world. They are domestically serving the growing Chinese middle class. And so we think that uh, the opportunity to own those businesses at, you know, in some cases, single digit multiples uh, seems to us we're getting paid for a lot of risk. You know, John Templeton used to say, people always ask me what looks good. But if they're interested in investment opportunity, they should ask what looks bad. Mm. Where are people scared? And I would say in terms of panic, I said, I don't see panic in the US yet. I haven't seen any panic in fixed income, which surprises me because in some cases, people have lost more money in bonds than they have in stocks. And yet nobody seems to think of bonds as risky yet. Uh, that was very different. My grand grandfather called bond certificates of confiscation. And, and uh, I think you could lose money for a generation in bonds uh, starting at the prices where we were a year ago and continuing. So I think there's risk there. But where I do see panic in the world right now is is definitely, uh, you know, I see distaste internationally and panic in China. And so, again, running the Geiger counter over the panic and looking for the businesses that have characteristics of durability, as I said, the Amazon in 2002, uh, you know, when it was down from 80 to six, well, mm -hmm. it looked a lot riskier, but boy, it was a career maker for people that were able to to, to move against the grain during that panic. And that's why we like having a portfolio that allows for undervalued growth as well as durable growing value. Yeah, Amazon wasn't the only one. I think in its history, Apple has fallen by more than 90% once or twice uh, going back in its history. So there, and, and, and may, Amazon may have fallen by more than 90%, even more than once too. I'm embarrassed to say we owned Apple uh, briefly at a time when the market cap was less than the mark-to-market -market value of their real estate. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah. Well, I just want to mention- We made a quick double and sold it. <laughs> well- <laughs> At the time, you must have felt great, but yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't feel so smart in retrospect. Well, we'll edit that part out of this interview. Just kidding. No. <laughs> um, but I, one point on the Chinese stocks, Alibaba actually is up 15% today. Um, yeah. So that, I, I mean, there is so much pessimism that probably wouldn't take much to, to set some of these going it higher. Won't, it won't take much. And as I say, there's been very little in Chinese policy over 40 or 50 years that has been radically anti-business. And so there are some exceptions, but there are exceptions in Europe too. And, uh, and uh, so far, we think by and large, that is a, the history would indicate that's a rational government that is interested in economic growth. And so putting a marker on the table, I, I don't think that's a, a crazy idea. In the same way, it was like buying financial stocks here after the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. People almost thought you were unpatriotic if you were willing to buy Bank America or Wells Fargo. I mean, after what the banks did to our country, you know, that right. people were angry. Clients were angry. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we get that reaction with, you know, even though we have a relatively small investment in China, you know, is percentage of total firm assets. Our view is, you know, you've got to be willing to look where the, the headlines are bad. You know, you think mm -hmm. of Philip Morris in, in the 90s. I mean, my God, people couldn't stand and yet it was one of the best performing stocks for the next 20 years. Yeah, a lot of it's due to that dividend and reinvesting that. Um, but yeah, yeah there was so much some of these Chinese companies are now buying in stock uh, for the first time in their histories. And so that's a very, very interesting change. Well, I want to now pivot to, to Warren Buffett. And I just, he comes up in my mind now for two reasons. One is 
being on the board of Berkshire and also Coca-Cola, but I did want to say a lot of the stocks that you're describing and what you like, they tend, it makes me think of a Warren Buffett quote that I'm going to butcher here, but try to um, paraphrase. He said, in effect, it's better to buy a great business at a high valuation than to buy an average or mediocre business that's cheap. Um, and that's kind of what I'm hearing from you, you know, get the moat, get the quality, get the reliability and consistency. Um, obviously, you don't want to overpay, but if you find that quality, Buy it, own it, and stick with it. You're absolutely right. I mean, the best is to buy a great business at a cheap price. And what's interesting is that our portfolios currently, the the relative valuation discount is about as wide as it's been in my career. So hmm. I do think that we're getting that, what I call the value investor's dream of businesses that are growing at an above average rate and yet are trading at a below average valuation. That is a rare combination. And we have that in all of our major ETFs and strategies today, uh, where by being selective, on average, our earnings growth over the last five years for our companies has been higher than the indexes, and yet the PEs, the valuations are lower. So we love that combination, but you're absolutely right. What, you know, the best is a, a you know, a, a high quality growing business at a very low price. But if given the choice between an average business at, at a low price or a great business at a fair price, mm -hmm. uh, you should choose the latter. And so we do think that, you know, when you take a 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 year view of a, owning a business, that growth, businesses that grow profitably are more valuable than businesses that don't. Growth is a component of value. So we love owning businesses that have grown over long periods of time. They just might not be always uh, considered sexy growth. You know, as I say, companies uh, in financial services, you know, Capital One has been a wonderful growth company since it was started by the current CEO. I mean, it's amazing to think mm. one of the largest banks in America is still run by the founder. I mean, Alexander Hamilton's not still running Bank of <laughs> New York. And Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo having first created American Express and then gone on and created Wells Fargo. I mean, talk about a, a power duo. Uh, you know, but they aren't still running those institutions. And yet uh, Capital One is still run by its founder. And yet it's been a profound growth company, but it trades at, you know, a, a single digit multiple. Wow. Do, do you know offhand what year they were founded, Capital One? Capital One, I want to say is about 1989. Mm -hmm. I, I, right. I'd have to double check that, but it was either the, the I think it was the late 80s, uh, 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 very late 80s. And, and Rich Fairbanks was came right out of uh, Stanford Business School and had this idea. It's going to sound a little familiar uh, to you, Greg, which is, hmm, I wonder if we can use technology and data science as a way to rewrite the rules of financial services. So he came in and said, it's interesting that everybody who has a credit card pays the same price. Why don't we target, use data to selectively market special deals uh, to individuals. And of course, they didn't have any branches. They didn't have any brand. And they built, uh, they and uh, two or three other companies that started around the same time specializing, disrupted the entire credit card industry, took about 30 or 40% of the entire industry from the incumbents. Uh, and so, you know, when people talk about fintech disrupting, I always think, well, you know, Rich Fairbanks and Capital One were a disruptive force, and yet they've ended up as a as a very valuable bank. 
Right. I mean, a lot of banks um, or financial institutions can essentially um, acquire it as well. They can integrate it. They can co-opt it sometimes. So it's. I think the narratives often are very um, David versus Goliath, and and uh, it's not so black and white. Often. No, banks have been very good at incorporating innovation over over time. I mean, from money market, the invention of the money market fund to the invention of Venmo, uh, uh, you know. The banks were, you know, uh, caught on their heels, but they reacted and all of a sudden Zelle is bigger than Venmo and, uh, you know, money market funds are, are just an essential part of the banking system rather than a disruptor to the banking system. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I just want to touch on Warren Buffett, your, your long history with him. Um, you were asked to join Berkshire's board last year. You're a member of Coca-Cola's board. Just tell me a little what Warren's like. Just uh, speak to your relationship, et cetera. Warren and and Charlie and Berkshire Hathaway, uh, in addition to of course demonstrably being one of the 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 greatest uh, investment and then business leaders uh, uh, of the last century, they're also exemplars, and I think that it really matters in a world where there is increasing skepticism about business, about capitalism, uh, about corporate corporate America, you know, to point out uh, and study Berkshire as as exemplars of of the right aspects of capitalism. You know, the old uh, saying of the Quakers that they, you know, they came to America to do good and they did well. Uh, well, Berkshire is a wonderful example of a company that has done both. It is the model for stewardship. Uh, it is the model for for absolute uh, 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 stewardship of shareholders' equity, of communication, of integrity, of resiliency, of adaptability, and uh, and of decency. Uh, and I think that. It's very valuable for companies like that to be celebrated. And, and I think anybody that is in the world of business or investing or even simply curious about how our system works, one of the greatest aspects of Berkshire is that they've been such passionate teachers of their approach. They've been mm-hmm. advocates for an approach of doing business with this degree of integrity and transparency. And, and once a year, uh, Warren has written a letter that – is more valuable than any MBA anybody could ever get would simply be to study those annual reports uh, over the last 50 years. And and uh, so I'm proud of the association. I, I, you know, I would say, you know, it's, it's, I've been a fan as long as I can remember. And we've been attending the Berkshire Hathaway meetings for, you know, 30, more than 30 years. Uh, and, uh, and I've been studying and admiring uh, the approach and the culture of stewardship, which is something, and alignment, which are aspects that we try to embody in our own practice with our own relationship with advisors and clients. Well, you know, it's interesting, Chris, is I, I saw you at the Barron's Hall of Fame interviewed and when the topic of Berkshire, um, Warren and Charlie came up, your thoughts, your feelings were palpable just as they are now. Uh, The words are a little bit different, but they're almost the same. And the conviction is the same. I I have written down here, you said you spoke to to Berkshire as being an exemplar of stewardship. Uh, You said that being on Berkshire's board feels like an honor. And I also thought the following was most interesting. You said the company is worth fighting for. And 
on the surface, your average person might say, what is this epic giant company you need anyone to help defend them? But to your point, there is so much chicane, chicanery, malfeasance, deception, et cetera, cynicism in business. And, and this company it often is trying to lead and, and uh, do the right thing. Yeah, it's the sort of place that consultants and investment bankers uh, uh, hate. Uh, and of course, academics sometimes hate it too because it's not supposed to work so well. Uh, and uh, and so uh, you know, it's interesting uh, the the public disclosure around the investment banking fees and the structure on the Allegheny purchase. There are ways that that uh, you know Berkshire tries to educate both. Uh, 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 the public, the press, their shareholders when they see excess in the system. And of course, the people that are profiting from that excess uh, don't really like to have a spotlight shone, shone on them. And so, uh, uh, but, but Warren is, is, Warren is a giant and he is, he, he fights for what he believes is right. And, and certainly he fights uh, uh, for that sort of decency and common sense. And it makes sense. You know, it's the old saying, you know, you'll know a, a genius when the dunces form a confederacy against him. <laughs> uh, and so I, you know, if uh, the, the, the Berkshire Hathaway has no right-minded enemies, but it certainly has done a lot to hold a light up to the dark underbelly of parts of the investment industry, the mm -hmm. consultant industry, compensation consultants, and so on. So, uh, you know, of course, lately some in the crypto world, and and uh, so it, it 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 there there are there are enemies out there, and 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 Berkshire is worth fighting for. It is it is an example that should last for a hundred hundred years from now. Excellent. Well, we're just about out of time. Before we wrap up, I do want to ask you to share um, with listeners an actionable idea. <laughs> well, the, uh, I, I, you know, I would say that when advisors are dealing with clients in an environment like this, you know, I, I uh, used to sit on some pretty fancy investment committees for some charities, mostly here in New York. And I, I made myself very unpopular on those investment committees because I did things like whenever they fired a money manager, uh, I would keep track of how that manager did in the next five years compared to the manager that was hired to take their place. And of course, what always happens is people hire high and fire low. And so you get a whipsaw effect. And similarly, I think clients usually want to do now what they wish they had done five years ago. And it's very hard for an advisor to change that behavior uh, using a sledgehammer. But what I found on those investment committees is if I could just slow the decision down and spread it out, average it out over time. If somebody wanted to get into whatever had been super hot for the last five years, I would say, all right, well, we're going to hire this manager or allocate assets to that hot area, but let's let's do it 5% a quarter uh, over the next five years. Slow the decision down, spread mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. And that sort of dollar cost averaging, systematic investing, people think of that as a retail strategy, but it works very well with sophisticated clients and sophisticated institutions and almost always improves the long-term return. So, systematic investing uh, would be would be my one actionable idea. And, and presumably in a volatile environment, especially well, right? I mean, or at least it takes, it, it adds, it imposes the d discipline upon the investor in a way. Yeah, the only time uh, systematic investing 
produces a relatively lagging return compared to just jumping all in is if the market is on a one-way upward trajectory. Mm -hmm. Usually that's not what advisors are worried about. They're worried about getting in a client and then having the market drop 20%. So spreading out that decision uh, is a way to capitalize on volatility. So to make a bigger return in more volatile markets while at the same time reducing uh, the cost of self-destructive client behavior. So it's really a twofer in a volatile world. And I have to say, you know, to quote the old JP Morgan, uh, if you were to ask me my prediction for markets from here, I would say they will fluctuate. All right. Well, that's um, true as always and uh, good to know. <laughs> well, you know, thank you so much. I don't, uh, we, we covered a lot of ground, but we I would have been happy to keep talking um, and maybe we'll do it another time. It was definitely an enjoyable conversation. Well, Gray, I was proud to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, my guest was Chris Davis. Uh, for more advisor-specific podcast, please check out barons.com slash podcast. For The Way Forward, I'm Greg Bartalis. This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more.